Hey podcast listeners, this is Aaron and Patrick from The Common Thread, and we're here with Diane Gallagher, a Mugar archivist, and we're so happy to have you on the show. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, so I want to start asking, how did you come to find uh, the Peace Corps? Uh, what was your experience about it, and, and then your first ideas about what you were getting into, and what did it what did it mean to you initially? And give us some background on uh, uh, what what the Peace Corps actually is. Okay, 1961, John F. Kennedy uh, signed in the uh, quickest piece of legislation in Congress ever to that day and since. And my husband and I heard his uh, speech at the University of Michigan over the air, not there, and said, we should do that. So we applied as a couple. He was accepted because he was a physician, still is, um, and he went into training. And they had me come down for an interview, and I said, oh, you can't go. You're just pregnant. You can't do that. I said, I'm sure they have pregnant people in Africa. So we were disqualified because of my pregnancy. So it's called dream deferred. I then had four more, had four children. Um, and became single, and I said it's time to give back the gifts, and Peace Corps is the best way to do it. As uh, Arthur Schlesinger has said in the past, Peace Corps is the best piece of foreign policy that we have, and it's not our foreign policy. We now have 250,000 returned Peace Corps volunteers in the world who have served. We're still in the mix. Congress just passed our budget. It is very generous, and we're very pleased to have people. You have to have a college education or experience, and there's no age limit. When I went in, I was 53. I was not a cute young thing. I was a cute old thing. I went to the Republic of Cape Verde, West Africa, and served as small business development with very poor women. So there you are. That's the background of Peace Corps. And what about the philosophy, or JFK's philosophy behind the Peace Corps really drew you to that form of service versus other, other programs for foreign aid? What he said was, what can you do for your country, not what can your country do for you? And I think that's missing in the current civilized world of the United States. Volunteerism is starting to pick up. But when you volunteer, you get back more than you ever have received. Um, I learned humility, I learned courage, and I learned how very poor people are really extraordinarily smart and can survive, especially in an island that was a, had a uh, drought for 19 years when I got there. I never saw a tree, a bush, a plant, or a uh, piece of grass for three years. I came back, and when I used to be a recruiter at Fidelity Investments in Boston, if I would see returned Peace Corps volunteer on anybody's resume, I would say to my secretary, bring them in. I know they can do the job. In half the time, turn on a dime and not whine. <laughs> Whining seems to be a very popular uh, attitude, and I don't think anybody should ever whine. You can complain, but don't whine. And that's what the Peace Corps, you scratch any return Peace Corps volunteer and you will see how much their life was enhanced and entranced by being a volunteer. We're not called ex, we're not called former, we're called returned Peace Corps volunteer. 
And when uh, President Jimmy Carter gave me the Lillian Carter Award, his mother was a Peace Corps volunteer in India at the age of 68, for heaven's sakes. She was a nurse. She was brilliant. She um, took care of a very small little village in India. And one day the director came in and said, Miss Lillian, there's a patient here. Nobody will take care of her. Would you please take care of her? And in came an eight-year-old and she had leprosy. And so she scrubbed her up, gave her shots, and she said, do you know how to read? No. Do you know how to uh, read or write? No. Come over here. I'm going to teach you. So for the next year and a half, Miss Lillian Carter taught this little girl. Miss Lillian went back to Georgia, passed away. The president said, let's have an award each year, each other year biannually for the Lillian Carter Award for a return Peace Corps volunteer who keeps doing things for Peace Corps, like I'm doing. So I received it in 2012, I think it was. And um, so he went back and they built a clinic in this tiny little village, although now it wasn't a tiny little village, it was a very big community. And he was talking to the man who was the director, and there were thousands of Indians in the audience. And he said, you know, I wonder whatever happened to that little girl. And in the audience, a hand went up, and the young woman stood up. And President Carter said, yes, ma'am. She said, I am that little girl. And he said, what do you do now, ma'am? And she said, I'm the president of the University of Mumbai. How's wow. that for a story, I want to um, ask you more about that philosophy of not whining and uh, how it and how uh, that existed in your mind before uh, the Peace Corps and when that started to. Uh, I don't know if it uh, came to you articulated while you, at any point while you were there in the years you were there. Um, or if it was only something you realized in the years after, and how it existed, how uh, you interacted, or, or what you mean by the mindset, that mindset of, of whining, uh, and what exactly uh, you realized, and what changed in you from the That's school. a big question, Patrick. There are about five in there. <laughs> sure. I'll start at the beginning. I was born in New York. When you're a New Yorker, you have an attitude. You don't complain. You, uh, you don't whine. You complain and you change it. And that's the way I was brought up. Uh, my father was a Harvard Law School graduate. Mother was an artist from the Museum of uh, Fine Arts. So I had the art and the lawyer as mother, father. And um, I always believe I'm Scottish-Irish with a dad of French. Uh, but mostly I'm a fighter and I'm an activist. And I have been since the get-go. Um, I thought Peace Corps would be great for both my husband and myself, but it wasn't to be. So when I went in as myself, I had that attitude, but I was scared. It's a scary thing to take off and go into the unknown. It's like going into a swimming pool and they drop you in the deep end. You better learn how to swim. If you don't, you can do the dog paddle. And uh, I think I got more done in the Peace Corps because of my age. I was 53. And I would go in and talk to the ministers and the president of Cabo Verde, uh, which was a Portuguese colony under uh, dreadful Salazar. And they would listen to me because I had that experience. Mm -hmm. You young people 
have to have that energy, have to have that enthusiasm, have to have what they call, there was a wonderful movie with John Wayne called True Grit. And I think that that's what our generation had. I'm now 80 and a half, for God's sakes. I can probably outdance you, and I'm sure I can outdrink you, Erin. Oh, sure, of course. <laughs> and maybe your mom, too. Um, but you have to have a sense of, you've got to get it done. I was in the elevator, and this kid was getting off very slowly. I said, got to move, got to move. And he goes, so why? I said, I'm being interviewed, and i got to talk about people. I said, and I looked at your script and said, Bob Dylan. I said, is he still alive? He said, yes, ma'am. So we finally got to the first floor, and he said, by the way, for your interview, he got the Nobel Prize of Literature. And I go, see that? I learned. And he said, yes, ma'am. He said, after you. I said, good man. <laughs> so I think the BU students who are uh, varied, diverse, enthusiastic, intelligent, got to be intelligent, um, have to get that blood going. I have a, a granddaughter. Her name is Jane Caitlin Gallagher. She is now a sophomore, and she hustles morning, noon, and night. She can out-hustle her grandmother, which takes something to do. But I think by example, Patrick, you can show your classmates and you, Erin, your good soul and, and part of this tapestry that I think is so important to get out there and go diverse. I just came to the George Sherman Union, and I looked at all the different um, people and the different organizations. This is an enthusiastic, it's not ho-hum, Cape Cod, uh, you know, little uh, school. It's a, it's a worldwide, world-respected university. And all of you on your graduation uh, year are going to be set to soar. But you have to have the background, and then you have to have the blood going through your veins. Helps if you were born in New York. <laughs> Well, is that is that enough of an answer, Patrick? Yeah, I'm I'm interested in uh, yeah I'm interested in uh, your comment on uh, you think that this attitude is more prevalent or lost to some extent mm -hmm. with with uh, a younger age. Do you mm -hmm. see? Um, can you can you expand on that in any way? In, yeah, I think it's the wisdom that you had going into the Peace Corps or how to learn from the people right. there more than... I had a certain amount because of my living for 53 years, but they taught me so much more in the Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. They taught me um, how to make something work that couldn't work before, and they didn't have iPods, they didn't have emails. What I see today is when I go down Commonwealth Avenue and I see young students and they're going to bang into me, and I go, heads up! And I go like that. <laughs> You're looking for instant gratification. Mm -hmm. I wanted. I was in an elevator with a man, and we were going up to, uh, you know, a high floor, and he said to his wife, "What's for dinner?" For heaven's sakes, wait until you get into the house, and then you can smell the garlic, and the roast beef, or whatever. That's what bothers me, and that's what concerns me about the young people: instant gratification. I want to know. I take a trolley. I don't have a car. I live in Brookline. I love to hear the birds at twilight. They're going into their nest. I see the moonrise on Calm Ave, and I say to the kids around me, excuse me, get off that box and look at, the, look at the moon. I think that's been lost, and I think it's because of technology. And I will argue with Bill Gates 
till the cows come home. <laughs> I want you to have that. When I have a dinner party, which I have a lot, I turn off all the electric lights and I light my candles and I say, there's a basket by the front door. Leave Put all your tech stuff in there. Mm -hmm. And anybody that gives me a hard time doesn't get a return invitation. Mm -hmm. And your mother will say that. You know, I used to, her mother was my guest. Right. But I think, I think you have to pause. I mean, Howard Thurman, and and um, uh, the other man, the, the other man whose name is whatever it is, McKechnie. McKechnie. I met him. <laughs> he was he was 110 years old. I mean, he's really old. And he found out I was a returned Peace Corps volunteer. And he said, I used to talk to Sergeant Shriver and give him advice about the Peace Corps. And he would give them a book called uh, The Ugly American. Have you ever heard of that book, The Ugly American? I've heard of the phrase frequently. Yeah. It's because of a book, mm -hmm. and it was built, It was written by William Letterer, and it's about an ambassador who was in a foreign country. He was a State Department guy, and he didn't learn the language, didn't learn the customs, didn't know the culture, and he was called The Ugly American, not because of his face. And that's when somebody goes into Africa, and they're at a, at a little hut, and they bring wine, and my friend goes, gee, it's not chilled. White is supposed to be chilled. Mm. You go, excuse right. me? So I think we have to lower our expectations when we go to other countries. We have to open our minds and we have to open our hearts to get a message that they're going to give us. And the message I got was be kind to each other, be smart, be savvy, watch out for the phonies and the people that are going to con you because the world is full of them. Mm -hmm. I think that's fascinating. I'd love to see how um, you and the Peace Corps applied that philosophy when you got there. Did you did you know the projects you were going to be working on, or did you all go into the village? Um, I forget the name of the village you Mindelo. were in. Mindelo. Mindelo. And ask them what they were looking for um, in terms of working together? or um, I'll tell you how it works. Yeah. Peace Corps is very smart. We're 56 years old now, and we give you three months of training in-country. Uh, Cape Verde didn't have any facilities, so we went to Guinea-Bissau, which is, if this is Morocco, I'm showing her the map of Africa, <laughs> all your listeners, up here, this is West Africa, this is Dakar, Senegal, Cape Verde is way out here. They didn't have a room big enough for us, we were 49 people. So we went to Guinea-Bissau, zero equator, we're talking hot. We're talking human, we're talking scorpions, we're talking snakes, we're talking fabulous people who love to dance and love to drink grog. That's where I learned Portuguese. I, when I filled out my application, I said in red, do not send me to a country where I have to learn another language. I already have two, English and New York Street. <laughs> and my recruiter said, you can't put that down, Mrs. Gallagher. I said, I just did son, and it's in red, so you can't take it out. So I had to, so they teach you culture, they teach you the language, and they give you a job description, a real job description. And you are expected to do that in two and a half years, two years really. I extended, so I was there for three. And uh, it's not club med. You don't go in and dance with the locals. You never, ever call them natives, you call them locals. You go in and you work your sweet ass off. And sometimes I cried. Sometimes if you read my book, um, they said, if you don't pass the language 
test. I was just reading this part for, for another project. Yeah, I wrote the story about yeah. the language. And, and uh, if you don't pass the language test, uh, you're sent home. And I said, that thought had a certain appeal to me. And so I, call, I, I wrote a letter to my college classmate who lived in Hawaii, and I said, Maria, I'm bailing. I'm not going to stay here. It's not for me. It's just too hard. And I won't talk to anybody about the Peace Corps. And she wrote back and she said, Dear Diane, forget it. You're not welcome. Stick with it. Here's $25. Blow it. Love, Maria. So I stayed. And an old woman taught me the language. Did you remember that part? I remember that story. I'd love if you told everyone okay. else that story. Um, I was, a man comes, a, a language teacher from uh, Washington, D.C., and they evaluate everybody. And uh, my evaluation was, uh, Patrick, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to give me a quick answer. One to five. Uh, five means it's going to be easy for you to get the language. One means it's right. going to be hard. What do you think I got on the evaluation by the lang linguistic professor? Give me a number quickly. Don't uh, think. Five. Minus two, Patrick. <laughs> Minus two. In other words, it wasn't a hell of a chance I was going to get Portuguese. I mean, it's, it's got 12 tenses, for heaven's sakes. Right. So I whittled them down to three. Passado, past. Agora, right now. Para futuro, for the future. So that's all I got. And I would say the verb, and i go, para futuro, agora, passado. And they knew what I was talking about. So I had a language teacher in the morning, then at lunch, then in the afternoon, then dinner. And so finally they were getting so frustrated with me. The guy said, let's go for a walk. I'm going to take you into the interior in Guinea-Bissau, which is a horrible... Horribly run country and um, tough to live in. And he took me to a grog cellar. A grog is uh, palm wine, very strong. It makes single malt scotch look like water. So this lady, one eye is, is wandering, one ear couldn't hear, hardly any teeth. She had to be 40, she lived 100. And she goes, I go, oh, bon dia. She goes, now, senora, anoint. I said, good morning. It was nighttime, so she taught me the first one. And she had three glasses, and she poured grog into each one of them. And my teacher went, and drank it down. She goes, and drank it down. I went, well, if they can do that. I'm a New Yorker. I can drink single malt scotch. I went like this. And Aaron, my throat closed. My heart palpitated. I had double vision, and my ears rang. It was so strong. And I went, wow. And she said, fort. And I went, strong. That means strong. So this guy would take me back every night at about 8 o'clock when it was very dark, nobody would see what we were doing, and he'd leave me there for two hours. And this woman, who did not have a PhD from Harvard in linguistics, she, but she probably never went to school, taught me everything. And I learned the language from this little old lady with a wandering eye, one deaf ear, and no teeth. So that was about, I'd say, six to eight weeks. So then I went for my test. And they signed me up for 6 a.m. because they were afraid that if they gave it to me in the afternoon, I'd be too drunk or I'd run away <laughs> or I'd kill myself. One of the three options. All looked good to me. And so I went in, and the, the test the man that tested me was, was, was Bissauan, lovely man, Sabu. And he said, Bon dia, Diana. Como esta? I went, Como esta? And he said, Dice me sobre sua familia. Tell me about your family. I went, yes, I know how to do this. She taught me. I said, I tenho quatro filhos, tres filhos, um filho. 
I have four children, three girls, one boy. He goes, ah, oh, boa Diana. He thought I was going to flunk, and he was practically had my airline ticket back to Brooklyn, Massachusetts. So uh, he said, tell me about each one of them. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, and I told about each child, and I perspired. I, my blouse ended up where I had the Nixon upper lip of perspiration. I was exhausted. I came out at 7 o'clock, and there was a lady standing under a baobab tree. She said, Deanna, tease me. See her now. And the word for no in Portuguese is now, N-O-W, but it's N-A-O. That took me about two weeks to figure that one out. <laughs> so I looked and I said, no say, I don't know. Sabu came out and said, Ella Passado. Ella passed, she passed. So the lady opened up her pano, and what did she take out? A little bottle of grog. She gave it to me, she boa Diana. Gave it to me and walked away. Next morning I flew to Cape Verde. I never knew her name. I never knew her background. She knew everything about me. And that's what I learned. So when you go into the Peace Corps, you don't know what's coming. It's, you know, great expectations. It's the most exciting adventure you can have. And I, I now work at the Howard Gottlieb Archival Center, not at Mugar Library. We're housed there, but we don't work mm -hmm. at the library. And there is not a month that doesn't go by that somebody says, oh yeah, talk to Gallagher, she'll talk to you about the Peace Corps. So we keep putting that message out there. Learn about the world. And uh, I fell in love twice. Once with a little boy who was two years old, Paulino. And once with a man, he was a little, all men were little boys, sorry Patrick. <laughs> and uh, he would say, todo mundo e pequeno. The whole world is very small. And I bump into people, like the kid in the, in the elevator who told me that Bob Dylan indeed was still alive and indeed had just gotten the Nobel Prize for Literature. So you have to have your tentacles open, your heart open, your soul open, and you get these wonderful adventures. If you go into the Peace Corps, you can call me up at the Gottlieb Center, go to Erin, she'll tell you how to find me. And um, I have a grandson, Jack Gallagher, and he's at UMass Amherst, and he said, Nana, I need three books one for the library at school, one for the library at, at the uh, town of Amherst, and then one I'm going to give to my friend. How much are you going to charge me? Dear Jack, I'm not going to charge you, dear boy. Just keep pushing Peace Corps. So, you know, he's pushing it, Jane's pushing it, everybody's pushing it because it's something that we need more of. Under, am I allowed to say anything political? Yeah, please do. <laughs> Under the current administration, I don't believe that there is anything called volunteerism. It's all how to make a bloody buck. And there's more to the world than making a bloody buck. I was called a volunteer because guess what? I didn't get any money. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can't go in for the money part. Well, and I think something that your book points to about the Peace Corps is that it's not just what we call today like volunteerism, you know, it's not just to go briefly to see the country and to build a wall, or that's that's a bad example, um, right. to build a house or something, but some of the projects you did were very, very sustainable. Um, I don't know if you want to expand on either the HIV and AIDS prevention or the library or the mm -hmm. um, sewing association or your love stories with 
either the two-year-old Paulino or with Victorino. Or Victorino is 59. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, sure, I But will. all of those are so sustainable and I think speak to kind of the mission of the Peace Corps. Right, right. Um, the Sewing Association was very, very uh, successful. And I went back to get Paulino, a little boy, two years later. I'm going to lend this to you, Patrick, because you haven't read it yet. And right. then you bring it back here and put it in the library. Yeah. Okay? yeah. And then I want a report on my desk by one <laughs> <laughs> Kidding. Um, so uh, I, what, what, you're, what you're given in the training is to listen to the people. Don't come in and say, oh, I know what you have to do. You can't, you can't plant corn there. You have to plant it over there, et cetera, et cetera. So I said to these women who lived in tin shacks, they were desperately poor. Tin shacks were half the size of this table that we're sitting at. So it's by 10 by 10. And they had no money. And I said, you, what, what do you do? What, what are your talents? What are your skills? And they looked at me. They didn't have an answer. About two weeks after I sat there, day after day, waiting for some kind of inspiration, please God, the, um, a man came in and he said, uh, I have to go to a funeral on Friday. I need a new suit. So she said, okay, stand over there. Okay, turn around, put your arms out. Okay, fine, come back Friday. I said, excuse me, where, where was your measuring tape? And where was your pattern that we used to use? She said, my eyes. So I made sure I was there on Friday. And this man walked in and put on the trousers. The trousers were exactly correct. They came to the cuff of their shoe and the inseam was perfect and the waist was perfect. Then he put on the jacket, the sleeves were two inches from the wrist, it fit here, and I went, your seamstresses, and I said, como se dice, what does that mean? I said, Where, where's your sewing machine? Oh, it's over there, we keep it hidden because we don't want it to be stolen. So I said, we're gonna have a sewing association, we're gonna make clothes. So I wrote to all my friends, we didn't have email then. Uh, I had to write personal letters to all my friends, I'd send my son, uh, an envelope like that and in it were ten letters to my best women friends saying send me material send me money send me books to the library and they did because they felt so guilty that they weren't sweating their ass off and I was doing all the work they said oh give it to Diane that's fine yeah. so I got material and we started making because it was a Roman still is a Roman Catholic country um, uh, there is no uh, birth control so everybody was pregnant and so I said, we're going to make maternity clothes. And they go, what's that? And I go, oh, my God, they don't even know. I said, because all their clothes were very tight. And I said, no, we're going to make them like this, and it's going to be Ampere. So we start making them, and everybody came in, and they would give us coins. So one day I went to the bank. Do you remember the bank story? I do, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we walked in. I said, we have to put the money in the bank, because then we're going to send money back to the people gave us grants. Like, oh, we don't do that. I said, oh, yes, you do on my watch, you do. Mm -hmm. So we walked in, and what I hate about developing countries is the wealthy or the upper middle class hate the poor, and they put all these constraints on the poor. They fetter them like you do a horse that you don't want to run away. No different than in developed countries. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And so um, he said, they, they can't come in, they don't have shoes. I said, we're not taking money out, we're putting money in. They can't come in, they don't have shoes. I said, okay. So I took the 11 women outside and my New York attitude kicked in. I said, go back to the tin shack town, Il de Madera or Campino, and get 10 pair, 11 pairs of shoes. Meet me in my apartment. 
which was a very modest apartment. No water, no electricity, and I had everything. Um, I'm going to go take a nap. I'm exhausted. So they go and they bring the clothes, the, their shoes. So I give one person a ballet slipper and a high heel. I give her a tennis shoe and a flip-flop. I give her, so what did I do? I gave mixed shoes to everybody. So we walked down to the bank, a little <laughs> off, and we walked in, and the guy said, Deanna, up. Oh. And he looked down at the shoes, and he goes, got it. I said, don't you ever discriminate against the poor women that I work with again. So we opened up an account. We paid Fidelity Investments back. We paid a coral group from Arlington, Massachusetts. We paid everybody back, and they got enough money to buy cement from Portugal, dreadful country. I mean, the, the um, administration, and we made some in houses so they could, they could live like human beings instead of like slaves that they were. So that is still going on. I was on a coalition of Cape Verdeans uh, about four years ago. They asked me to be a member. And I said, what are we going to do? And they said, well, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to start uh, an, an orphanage. You don't know this story for abandoned children, not orphans who have lost their parents, abandoned, which is worse. I said, great. So I started putting my tentacles out, and I got a lot of money. We all got a lot of money. We were going to go over to Cape Verde. I said, well, wait, wait. I want to see who the children's names are. Guess what, Patrick? They were all male, every single one of them. I said, excuse me, um, what, what about girls who have been abandoned? Oh, there aren't any. So I looked at this coalition of Cape Verdeans. I said, how many of you have lived in Cape Verde? Not one hand went up. Not one. I had lived there for three years. I said there are abandoned girls just as much as there, just as many um, as there are. So I'm not giving you money. I'm taking all my money away. They said, oh, Deanna. I said, don't give me that bullshit. Uh, I'm taking the money away. Guess what? They found six girls. <laughs> so I went over, I would say four years ago, and, and opened up an orphanage. Ten boys, six girls, and it's still going on. And then I checked with the sewing association, and it has grown. And one lady teaches in the interior, another one teaches on another island, another one went to Portugal, but it's still going on, and that's called sustainability. We don't go in and say, here's a fix, it's going to take care of you for two years. We want it to go down through the generations. And that's what, that's what Peace Corps is all about. I'm noticing an interesting uh, undercurrent with your interpersonal uh, treatment of people, your view of people on a person-to-person level. I'm interested in how you, uh, to what extent you were conscious of yourself as a American when you went, and and the extent to which this played in your interactions with the people, but also just more generally, uh, how how you view. Uh, and uh, I, I know that for a lot of people, a consciousness of how they come from far away in such a different culture, uh, and maybe and the culture and the consciousness uh, could exist within these the people themselves living there, could create this this block uh, and a, a maybe unnaturalness or a stiffness uh, in the literal, uh, you know, person to person speaking, uh, body language, things like that. Did you find yourself impeded, and was it a thing that only lasted for a while? 
and then can you expand on more generally how you view people, how you approach uh, uh, another human being to interact with them and your, uh, yeah, your, uh, if, if you want to get into a philosophy about um, uh, tre- treating people, interpersonal relationships in general, and interpersonal interactions. And how they initially reacted. Sure. Well, I think the biggest thing was the training. We had locals training us. And they said, this is what Cape Verdeans are like. They won't do anything because they've been a colony for Portugal for so long, unless they get the imprimatur, the stamp of approval. And I said, really? And when I got there, they were right. The older generation said, well, Diane, we'll get back to you, because they had been conditioned by Portugal not to do anything unless Portugal gave you the Nelio Obstat, which is the stamp of acceptance. So I knew that going in, and yet the younger people said, well, I think we can try that. Uh, Maybe we can do that. So I went to, um, this is a case in point about AIDS. A-I-D-S in Portuguese is spelled S-I-D-A, AIDS backwards, so CIDA. So I went into the hospital and I said, who's giving the classes on, uh, this is 1990, um, on AIDS, on CIDA? Oh, we don't have AIDS here. I said, oh, really? The only place on the entire planet that doesn't have AIDS. Nope, nope, we don't have it. Fine. So I go to Red Cross, Cruz Vermelho, and I ask this big, pompous, pain-in-the-ass guy. I said, so what are you, what are you doing for um, um, CETA? And he goes, uh, well, well, we're going to get some booklets soon. And I said, what do you have here? I don't see any, any booklets. He said, well, no, we, we take care of emergencies. So guess what I did? I wrote to C. Everett Coop, who was a surgeon general at that time, now, Daddy, the New York lawyer who went to Harvard, said, when you want something, go to the top. Don't go to the little guy, because he or she won't be able to make the decision. Go to the top. Go to Bill Gates. Go to General Flynn, who's trying to get chaos into uh, something manageable at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Good luck sending the Marines. Um, and, and I wrote to him, and I said, I'm a New Yorker. I need books on... AIDS, and I need them in Portuguese. What can you do for me? The next month, we only had a plane once a day, and many times the wind was too bad, so it would be the next day. There was a box for me, and there were pamphlets on AIDS prevention from the Surgeon General of the United States. So he got got it, and when I came back, I wrote him a letter, and I told him what I had done. He said, well done, thank you very much. And we were going to meet, and we never did. But I think, I think what you try to do with the Peace Corps and what every single Boston University student should do is try your best. Because Margaret Mead, who is a famous anthropologist, said, never doubt for one moment that one person can't make a difference. And one person can, Patrick, and one person can, Aaron. And Sharon, your mother, knows that too. So you can do that. It's a philosophy that's conditioned by your either your family or if you don't have that in your family you learn it from the outside so the three-month training was very important then you went in and you saw that all that you learned there was indeed true they were afraid to move until you could they were afraid to take orders from a woman I went into the first ministers meeting I was terrified I got sick to my stomach that morning because I was so scared and I don't scare easily 
and I walked in, and we're all sitting like we are around the table. And I said, Bon dia, mayo nome Diana. Good morning, my name is Diana. I went, oh God, here we go. And uh, so I heard one say, mulher velha, which means old woman. And the man next to him, they didn't know I knew Portuguese, other than, hello, how are you, my name is. And he said, yeah, but, but ela esperto. And I went, I know what that means, that means she's smart. And the third minister of finance, who became my nemesis, horrible man, Evera, he's in the book, and I hope he reads it, um, <laughs> said, how do you know that? And he said, Ella Tem Rugish. She has, what the hell is Rugish? I didn't know. And I didn't want to bring my dictionary because I didn't want them to know. I was mm -hmm. so dumb in Portuguese. So. I sat and I listened to everybody and I tried not to fall asleep or get angry and grab them by their throat. And I left after two hours. I ran home to my dictionary and Rugish, R-O-U-G-A-S in Portuguese means wrinkles. And what they said is she's old and she has wrinkles, so that makes her smart. And I went, I'm playing that card. <laughs> so for the next two and a half years, I played old and wrinkled. And I'd come in and I said, well, in my experience, I remember when, and this is what, you know, the elephant herds do. They, who do they go to? The bull? No, they go to the matriarch, who has all of her calves and baby elephants around her. And she said, the last time this creek was dry, we went over here to you know, Zimbabwe instead of Botswana. And so they listen to her. So they listen to the elders, and the elders are very important. I came home, and I thought, A, Everybody would love me. B, they'd love my stories. And C, they'd want to go in the Peace Corps. A, nobody loved me. B, they didn't want to hear my stories. And C, I don't know who went into the Peace Corps. So I had to lower my expectations. Um, when it was raining, I went out without an umbrella because I hadn't felt the rain in three years. So it's, a, it's, a, it's as Hemingway said, it's a movable feast. And you have to be ready and open. And if you don't travel, it's a book you haven't read. And that's from St. Augustine, who was a North African black saint, which I did not know. Mm -hmm. So in answer to your question, it's, uh, it's a crapshoot in the dark with all the lights out. You go in and you turn the light on, and you say, I can make a difference. It is interesting. It is something that I can do. And then just have the courage. But also remember, you're going to get scared. Uh, when the plane landed in Guinea-Bissau, it was pitch black and raining, and 48 or 49 of us all together, 48 got out and they were all excited and they were yelling and screaming, we're here, we're here, and I went, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. I have sold the car, gave the cat away, said goodbye to all the guys, and rented a condo. I don't know what I'm going to do. So I held on to the back of the seat in front of me, and I became paralyzed. And the pilot came out and said to the dude that was at the bottom of the ladder, saying, everybody's out except one old lady. You've got to come up and take her fingers off the back of, <laughs> of the chair. So up comes this very attractive man named Francisco Silva. And he goes, hi, how are you? My name is Francisco. I went, oh, you speak English? He says, yes, I do. We were wondering if you'd like to join us. I went, yeah, sure. So he comes over and he takes finger on finger by finger off. And he goes, I'm going to teach you your first Portuguese word, guarda-chuva, which is umbrella. 
which means guarding from the rank. Shuva is rank, water. And I said, oh, he said, here's my armor. It went like that. I said, I wonder if he knows how to dance. Because <laughs> when you're 53, you're not dead. You're still, you're still available. So I went like this, and he took me down, and they had chocolate chip cookies and Coca-Cola. And they said, welcome Peace Corps trainees. And I realized I wasn't a volunteer yet. I was a trainee. And they welcome you, and they are with you the entire time. I had to do a weekly report and send it by plane to the capital where my boss was. So as I said before, it's not Club Med. You have a job description, you have monthly meetings with the director, and they make sure you do your job. What I love about how you ended your book, since we're almost out of time, is um, you did full circle with how you met Paulino um, when you first got there, oh, yeah. this cute little boy. Um, but then the whole end of your book is just, it kept me on the edge of my seat, um, figuring out how to get him into an adopted family in the United States because, um, is it Emilio was his mom's name? Yeah, Amelia. Couldn't take Couldn't take care of him? Yeah. Um, could you just tell that story and maybe like sure. the emotional process of um, taking him away from his mother, but at the same time knowing that that would save his life and save hers, knowing that he would be okay? Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I went into this tin shack town where poverty was rampant, a little boy came up to me and he was very tiny. He was two years old and he pulled on my, my shirt. And I looked at him and I said, just get out of my way, kid. Uh, I have a job to do and uh, I'm in the Peace Corps and you're not part of it. So I walked away. Of course, he had no idea, but he was a smart kid. So the next day he comes over and I said, I already have four children, I'm not gonna be responsible for you. Third day he comes over and I go, gee, he really is cute, okay. You can get on my hip for a couple of hours because I have to go and do interviews to find out how much money I have to give to all the ladies here. And those, uh, the, that two hours became two years, and it became part of my life. Amelia was sick. She, she was not well. And uh, so she said at the end of my tour, would you please take Paulino back to Status Unitas, which is United States. I go, I can't. Uh, I have four children. I won't have any money. I won't have the strength. And bye-bye. Uh, so I left. It was very hard to leave him. And I said, no libramish. Libramish is tears, and it comes from Latin, meaning to cry. No libramish, Paulino, see Deanna. So I went home, and then I started saving money, and I went back two years later, and I stayed with my friend, uh, friends, Marianne and Pedro Almeida, and they were uh, Cape Verdean, and uh, I said, I'm coming over to get Paulino. And so I went to his mother. I didn't know if she was alive. I didn't know if he was alive. He was four years old. And uh, so I said, I'll take him back now because I have the strength. And she said, okay. And she gave him to me. And that was the hardest thing for him to say goodbye to his mother. And I knew he would never see his mother again. He didn't know who his father was. <clears throat> Excuse me. Which is normal for um, uh, developing countries. So uh, I put him on the plane, I brought him back, and I went to Cape Verde. Newspapers, radios, televisions. I did New England. I did from Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Connecticut. Nobody wanted a boy. And finally, the office manager said, uh, I have a sister. She lives in Salt Lake City. I said, I'm sorry to hear that. She goes, what? <laughs> I said, well, you know, New Yorkers, that's the flyover zone. <laughs> Such an elitist, terrible thing to say. <laughs> So finally, I called up uh, 
Garber Travel. And Garber Travel was, uh, uh, at that time, everybody used travel agents. And I said, I got him on the phone. I said, Mr. Garber, uh, my name is Diane, and I need to have two round trip tickets for Salt Lake City. And I need to know if I can leave. And he said, well, what's your story? I said, well, it's all about <clears throat> John F. Kennedy's uh, dream of peace and blah, blah, blah. So went on and on. He said, bring the kid in. So I brought the kid in. This is in Brookline. <coughs> and he said, fine. He said, uh, I'll give you the tickets. So he gave me two free tickets. So I flew out. And I said, thank you, Mr. Garber. No, thank you, Mr. Gerber. He goes, Gerber is a baby food. I'm Garber, the travel man. I went, oh, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> so we go out there, and I see this family. And they had one older child who was uh, Latino. And uh, they couldn't have children, and so they were the perfect couple to uh, have him. And he went to school out there, and I'm his godmother, and then he went through high school, and then he went through college. And then he got married, and now he has two children, so I'm his children's godmother. So I guess I saved his life because his mother died two years, no, a year after I brought him back, mm -hmm. and I had his... My friend Marianne calls it. Amelia has passed away. So I called up his new mother and I said, You have to tell Paulina. And she said, No, no, you tell him. I said, No, no, you tell him. So we had this argument. So Paulino gets on the phone. He said, What's happening? I said, Paulino, I've told you a hundred times that's not the way you start a conversation. He said, Hi, how are you? I hope you're well now. What's happening? And I said, Well, I have some sad news for you. Your loving mother has passed away. And she loved you very much, and she wanted you to have a good life in the United States. And he said, oh, okay. Now he was then four, five, six, seven years old. And he said, well, that's okay, Deanna. Um, now I can say my prayers directly to her because she's in heaven. How tough is that to handle? So he came to my 80th birthday party this past December with the tuxedo and the fancy shoes. And I said, you better know how to dance, Paulino. He goes, I was practicing with a broom. I know how to dance. <laughs> what I loved about st staying at your little bed and breakfast joint in Brooklyn um, last fall was just the amount of artwork and, and books from all sorts of different places around the world that you decorated your house with. Um, and you mentioned that a lot of them came from your involvement with the Harvard International Host yes. Parent Program. Yes, the Harvard Host Family Program. Yeah. I'll tell you that quickly. Harvard started in 1974 a program for their foreign students to have a family here in uh, the immediate region of Harvard. You didn't have to live in Cambridge. And uh, you would not support them financially or give them room and board. You were just there and they needed you. And so I signed up because I wanted my four children to know what the world was really like out there, which is a fabulous, fabulous way to learn about countries. So over the years, 1972, I went into the Peace Corps in 1990, and my daughter, Maura, said she would take over, so she is now uh, doing it as well as I am. Four years ago, five years ago, I got a young lady from uh, Ghana, Daisy Akita, and I wrote to her, emailed her, and I said, I'm, I'm going to be your mother for the next four years. I'm looking forward to meeting you. Oh, by the way, I'm having a dinner party on Friday. Yeah, I know you arrive on Wednesday, so you won't be able to come, but, you know, I'll invite you to other parties. So 
uh, she writes, she doesn't write back, so she comes to America, and she's at Harvard, and Maura's doing the dishes and looking at him. She goes, Mom, there's a very pretty young black lady walking down the street. I know she doesn't live here in the neighborhood. And the next thing you know, there's a bell, and this opened the door, and she said, Hi, I'm Princess Daisy Akita from Ghana. I'm your new daughter. And I went, my goodness gracious, how smart she got there. I mean, we're talking Ghana, who doesn't have a big uh, GPS, whatever you call it. Um, and she's been my daughter for four years. Then she goes down to New York, works for Bain and Company, I think. Then goes down to Washington, and oh no. So when she was still at Harvard, she emailed me. She said, I'm home in Ghana, in uh, Kumasi, which is outside of Accra. And uh, my birth mother wants to know, what you're doing in August? Would you like to come and visit us? I said, name the week. So you turn on a dime when you're in the Peace Corps, or be you. And uh, so I went there, and uh, I had to get a visa. I had to get a yellow fever shot. I had to take extra time to get over there. And I stayed in Ghana for two weeks with this fabulous, fabulous mother, father, sister, no sisters, a lot of brothers. And uh, so I said, when she graduates, you must come, Mr. and Mrs. Akita, to my home. And they said, oh, we will. And the two of us will come. And then my sister and her husband, I went, okay, that's four. And she said, and then of course her brother and his fiance at six. So she named like nine people, and I went, oh, where am I going to get the, you know, the room stretchers? But we took care of it. And uh, so she came over, and we all went to the graduation. I was thrilled. She got awards. She took Swahili. Mathematics, international diplomacy, she's brilliant. So she calls me up this summer. She was in Washington. She said, I have something to tell you, other mom. And I said, what's that? She said, I just got accepted to Harvard Law School. So from Ghana, from outside of Accra in Kumasi to Harvard, she's going to go to Harvard Law School. And all, one, one, of our, one of my kids is in London working for, I can't remember, maybe Barclays Bank of of London, and I met him when I went over for a Florence Nightingale thing. And so I had a big party, and half of them was the Harvard host family. So what you do is you go out and you say, "We're going to show you the culture of the United States," and and there's an alum at Harvard uh, who had extra money, and he gives a hundred dollars to every incoming freshman at Harvard to put towards buying a winter coat. Remember that because they have that. no bloody idea. One of them, Maura, just took her, her student, and he said, you know, it's very cold, Maura. This was yesterday. It was in the 70s, <laughs> for heaven's sake. What's it going to do when it's minus 7, for goodness sakes? Um, and so my son, Bill, got a lot of clothing for my Harvard host son, who is, guess where, from Ghana, West Africa. So he said, thank you. I wrote to him, an email him, I said, do you have... Did you bring anything to wear that would cover you up and make you feel warm? He goes, oh, I have a jacket. Zipper is broken, but it's a jacket. I went, a jacket? That's going to last until the end of September. It's going to freeze. So my son got his winter clothes and my grandson's winter clothes, and we brought over two huge bags to Harvard Square, and he picked it up. He goes, this is a lot of clothes. Will I need it? And my son said, come here, I want to tell you about the winter here. <laughs> So it goes around and around, and I, uh, you know, I'm, I saw another one in uh, Russia, uh, Catherine Jolik, who is now went and got her PhD. Now she teaches at Stanford with her husband and little boy, and it just so, whatever I do, it seems to involve the world, 
and everybody should do that because todo mundo e pequeno, the world, the whole world is very small. And if we don't reach out to everybody instead of becoming Monroe Doctrine people that, you know, New York, I mean, uh, the United States is just going to be here and we're not going to be in the Paris Climate Accord, which is the worst mistake he has made so far, but there are so many, I can't name them all. Anyway, it was a delight to talk to the two of you, Erin, and say hello to your mother, Sharon. I will. She'll be here, actually, in a couple of weeks. Oh, good. She just got a job here. Um, really? Consulting back and forth. Yeah. Good mm -hmm. for her. Well, have her give me a call, and we'll go out for a bite to eat. I will. I will. Okay. I'll let her know. And Patrick, it was lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing these stories. They're really, they're really inspirational. I think this is the fear that you describe, taking that step to, to join, is is something I don't think it was uh, necessarily common in your generation either yeah. uh, and I think it's universal for it to not be a common thing I think that's what makes it important for it to be rare so it was a it was uh, really it was really a pleasure to, to hear this and to to hear your words about yeah this time in our generation thank you very yeah. much thank you thank you we'll make sure to plug your book for people to learn more. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. I'm, at the, I'm at the Boston University, Diane Gallard. All right, oh, no, it's called the book. My son said, Mom, don't forget to say the name of the bloody book. I said, oh, yeah, that's right. Loreofservice.com. Mm -hmm. We didn't have .com in Cape Verde. <laughs> and my granddaughter, Jane, said, you didn't have a cell phone, Nana? How'd you get anything done? I said, buy the drums and by rumor. <laughs> Thank you Thank so much. You. Thank you. Uh, we didn't get this on tape, but she left us with a poem that uh, is given to Peace Corps members uh, in a plaque uh, once they're done with their service. And we didn't get to record her reading it, but uh, I'm going to read it now. Be dishonest to pretend that I went because I wanted to turn the desert into a garden or to realize dreams that were thousands of years old. I went because it was different, because I wanted to, because it was a road that m might have an end. I knew I would not stay forever. I never thought of time, my future to this newness. I knew I would take the road back one day, but perhaps carrying with me a particle of the night's silence or of the day's honesty. Uh, this definitely resonates with the message she tried to give us. Um, she emphasized the importance of trying something new and fear that she did feel, but uh, how she thinks that feeling it is an essential part of living. So thank you for listening.